I want to take you to a passage that is um, a passage that teaches a great lesson, and uh, it's one of my favorite parables. I, I love the parables. Jason asked me to teach a parable when I came, and we did a little Wibby class on parables, if you know what Wibby is. But I, I love working through the parables. I love kind of exploring them and trying to figure out what they're teaching about, what they, what's going on in them. And this is one of my favorite parables because it's one of the hardest parables to understand, at least at least at first. I don't think you'll find that so by the end of the day, Lord willing. But it's one of my favorite parables because not only is it difficult to understand at first, but it also teaches a great lesson, one that every believer needs to understand. I called today's message a, a lesson in righteousness from the unrighteous. A lesson in righteousness from the unrighteous. And we're going to look at Luke 16, verses 1 to 13. It's a lesson in heavenly-mindedness from a worldly-minded man. And so let's begin reading Luke 16, starting at verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, we'll, we'll work through the text under four headings. Um, a great way to interpret the parables is, is just to begin by understanding the story itself, and then once you understand the story, then you can move to understanding the spiritual meaning of the parable. And we're going to kind of follow that principle. We're just going to really look at the story in the beginning. We're going to see, first of all, number one in your outline is going to be the predicament in verses one to three. Then we're going to see the play in verses four to seven, where the, the manager kind of comes up with a plan. We're going to look at just verse eight, the first part. We're going to call that the praise. And then we're going to look at the principle of the whole thing in verses, the second part of verse eight all the way to the end of verse 13. So we're going to have the predicament, the play, the praise, and then the principle. But before we get into the, the text here today, let me just say a little bit about parables in general. Parables are stories. And they're, they're made-up stories that Jesus made up to teach spiritual truths. And they're, they're stories really from everyday life intended to teach heavenly realities. And typically, not always, but typically parables only teach one main truth, one truth and only one truth. And this is different than allegories. In an allegory, every part of the story represents something else in reality. In a parable, it's just the main point of the parable that teaches one or sometimes more than one, but, but one spiritual truth. And the main truth of the story ends up being the main truth of the parable. And Jesus and the gospel writers, they always give us what we need so that we can discern the main thing out of that parable, the, the main thing that we should apply to our lives, the main thing that he's teaching us. And there's usually a, a question or 
um, a problem in the context or the situation that's going to kind of clue us in on, on how we should interpret this parable. And in this parable, the, the second half of verse 8 is really this, this clue that, that tells us how to interpret it. Note the word for there right after the parable ends. Look at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's the end of the parable right there. And now Jesus moves into explanation for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And so this is a parable that has to do with how we Christians, how we, the sons of light, deal with our generation, whatever that means. We'll, we'll tell you what that means in a little bit, but that, that's what this is all about, how the sons of light deal with their generation. But let's get into the story itself before we get to the, the interpretation of it. Look at verses 1 to 3, and we see the, the predicament that Jesus sets up in this parable. Now in verse 1, we meet the two main characters of our parable of our story, There's a rich man, and there's a manager. And the focus of the story is really on the manager and on what he does. In the first scene, we see the manager's predicament. He's in trouble. He's kind of in a a crisis of sorts, we could could say. In verse 1, there was a rich man who who had a manager, and charges were brought against him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. Now the first thing we need to note here is that this parable is directed towards the disciples. Verse 1 again, Jesus said to the disciples, And so this is a teaching for those who have already decided to follow Jesus Christ. It's for those who are believers. It's those for for those who have trusted Christ for eternal salvation. In other words, what I want you to understand is this as we get into this. This is a parable that teaches us how to live if we are believers and not how to become believers. And that'll be important to keep in mind later on. We should also note, though, that there is another audience that day If you look down at verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And so this is a parable for the disciples, but it's given in a hostile environment. And those who loved money, they scoffed at this teaching. They mocked it. They derided it. They they could not or they would not accept this teaching. And so this is a teaching that would make somebody who loves money scoff. Now, the parable itself begins, as many of them do, it says there was a a man, there was a certain man. A very literal translation would be there was a certain man or a certain man was rich. And this certain man was quite rich. He seems to have owned a, a great deal of land and his tenants owed him really quite a lot of money. In verse five, this man's manager summons his master's debtors. And the two examples in verses six and seven show that this, they, they owe this man a massive amount of money. In verse 6, 100 measures of oil, that'd be about 900 gallons, worth, more, worth about three years' income. In verse 7, 100 measures of wheat, that's probably uh, uh, 1,100 bushels of wheat. That'd be the produce of about 100 acres in a day when, when you didn't have tractors to help you work the land. And both of those, or, or, or that was worth about, about seven and a half years' wages for the average laborer, that much that, the, that this man, these men owe the master. And so this man was very, very wealthy. And like many wealthy landowners in the day, he had a manager. Another word for that manager is a, a steward, someone who ran the business and the household on behalf of the rich man. See, often a, a rich landowner, they would... They would, um, they would live far away from the land that they owned, or at least they would live far away from some of the land that they owned. And so they would have, have local managers to kind of take care of business for them. And sometimes these managers were slaves, but other times they were free agents who hired themselves out to the highest bidder. And this kind of a manager, this kind of a, a stewardship was a highly sought after position. This is kind of one of those dream jobs in the ancient Near East, if you could think about it like that. This is a dream job. This is a, a luxury position. This is kind of the, the top of the corporate ladder of the ancient Near Eastern world. 
The manager was in charge of everything that the, the owner had. So all of, of the master's goods were in his hand, and it was all at his disposal. Again, this is a, a dream gig here for this guy. The manager had absolute control of everything, and he was regarded as the owner himself. He had full legal authority, and whatever the manager agreed to, the owner was bound by it. Right? You follow that? Whatever the manager said, that if he signed off on that thing, the owner was bound by it. There was really nothing he could do. And so any deal the manager made was really regarded as if the owner himself had made that deal. And this was so much the case, again, that there's really nothing that the owner could do if a free agent manager made some bad deals and lost the owner money. And so choosing a trustworthy manager was incredibly important. Look back at verse 1. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And so the rich man heard a report that the manager was wasting his possessions. He was squandering them, if you have a New American Standard or the Legacy Standard Bible, squandering. That same word is used in Luke 15, 13, about the prodigal son who squandered his property in reckless living. The prodigal son wasted his property. He scattered it around in a reckless, wasteful manner. And that was what was happening in this situation. And so the rich man confronted the manager in verse 2. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He asked him to turn in the account of the management. He says, in, in effect, I want to see the books. Give me the records of the business transactions. He would, he would need those records to give to whoever he hired as a replacement. But our manager, notice, he got fired. He says, you can no longer be manager. And it seems likely here that the charges were true. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't ask for mercy. But so far, though, we don't know for sure if this manager was unrighteous. He could have been just negligent. He could have been wasteful. He could have been unwise or unskilled or ill-suited for the job. He, he's lost money of the owner. But whatever it was, he was fired. Now, one of the things when we, we get into parables is we need to realize Jesus only gives us the details that we need to know to make the main point. So he's not telling us everything we'd want to know about this story. He's just giving us enough details to make the point that he's trying to make. And so our manager is in a predicament. He, he's going to be fired. And, and guess what happens here in the ancient Near East? Nobody hires a manager who got fired for wasting their owner's possessions. Right? Nobody's going to want to hire this guy if that's the reason he got fired. And, and everyone in town knows about this thing. See, I live in small town Lacrete, 4,500 people, and, and really like half the people are related to the other half of the people. And they, they just, it's amazing what they know is going on in town. And that's how it would have been in ancient Israel like this. And so they would have known exactly what's going on. Everyone would have known why this guy got fired within a couple of weeks, and nobody would have hired this guy. And so he's in big trouble. Now in verse 3, we get a glimpse into his heart. Look at it again. It says, And the manager said to himself, so we're kind of hearing his little self-talk within his heart, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. And so his future is up in the air. And he says to himself, what shall I do? He's, he's concerned about his future well-being. Where it says there, my master is taking the management away from me, it, it implies a process that had begun that's not yet complete. You see, the manager, he still has his hands on the books. He's, he's fired, but nobody knows that this guy is fired except him and the owner. Now, that's a bad practice, by the way. If you ever have to fire someone, just make sure everyone knows that he's fired before, you know, you don't want to kind of leave this middle ground in, in the open, but that's what happens in our parable. Now, the manager's in trouble still, and, and he's used to this luxury life. You know, he's got soft hands like a pastor has. He, 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 he um, <laughs> sorry, brother, um, he... He's not strong enough to dig. Like he, you know, I used to work where I could dig and I, I, you know, you work in an office for too long and it's just, ooh, that's going to, that's going to be blisters. So manual labor is out of the question. 
no one's going to make him a manager. He's too proud to beg. He doesn't want to be out on the streets begging. And so he seems to have no options in front of him. And, and so he's, he's thinking, what do I do? And so we've got a man, just understanding the parable on the natural level here, we've got a man in crisis, and he's concerned about his future well-being. He's concerned about his future estate. And we've got to just kind of keep that in mind. So that's number one, the predicament. Now number two, let's, let's see the play. Number two, verses four to seven. The manager comes up with a plan to secure his future. He says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now that saying there, I know, that's kind of a vivid expression in the original. It's kind of like when a light bulb appears over the head of a cartoon character. It's, ah, I got it. I know what I'm going to do. And so an idea has kind of suddenly popped into his head. And the purpose of this idea that he has, this action that he's planning, is that so that when I am removed, people may receive me into their homes. And it's literally there just so that they will receive me, so that they will receive me. We'll come back to that a little bit later, but they will receive me. And his plan here is to ingratiate himself with his master's debtors. And he hopes to make them indebted to him so that they're going to welcome him when he is removed. And in that culture, that's kind of how things worked. If, if you did do something for me, then I'm going to do something for, me, for you, right? If, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. I'm going to help you, you help me. And, so, and it's almost more than it is in our society. It's almost expected. It's, a, it's an obligation. If you do something for someone, you're, they owe, you owe them something back. And, and you know what I'm saying, even though I'm getting a little mixed up here. But that, that's kind of the idea. Now, this plan is a deceitful, evil plan. The manager is pulling a fast one on his master, on the owner of the land. He's going to cook the books and then give them to the master. And that's why I'm calling this the play. It's, it's the scheme. It's a, a deceitful scheme, and it's intended to rob the master before everyone else in the community finds out that he's fired. And so look at verse 5 again. So summoning his master's debtor one, debtors one by one, He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now the New American Standard, and I would believe the LSB also, kind of makes it more clear that this manager summoned each one of his master's debtors. The ESV translates it one by one, but the idea is each one of these debtors are brought in in this way. Now, verse six and seven just give us two representative examples of what he did, but he did this with each one of the debtors. There would have been more than just two. Now, again, we don't know how many debtors there were. It doesn't matter. We're just trying to get the main point here. But what is important to recognize is that the manager summoned these debtors one by one, each one of them. And the way that this worked was that that legal contracts were made in duplicate. So there would have been two copies. One copy, first copy, was made in the manager's handwriting. The second copy was made in the debtor's handwriting. And so you've got two copies, two different handwritings, and you can kind of compare these things one to one. And so verse 5, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. Now a measure was a Hebrew measurement called a bath. And a bath of oil was about eight or nine gallons. And so a hundred baths of oil would have been eight or nine hundred gallons of oil. That's a lot of oil. One commentator, this would have been olive oil, by the way. One commentator said 150 olive trees is what this would have been amounted to. And 150 olive trees is equivalent to the wages of, a, of about three years for the average worker. So this is about three years' wages that, that is, that's owed here. And so this is a significant debt, well beyond what the average farmer would owe a landowner. Now look at what the manager does. Verse 6, he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And so the manager, again, he had the authority to do this. He could, he could do this as the manager. He could make a change like that. Notice that he says there, do this quickly. He doesn't have much time to make these shady deals before the master returns. 
Master could arrive any day and and check the books and remove the manager from his position and so quickly shows us that this is a dishonest transaction. He's not doing something good here. And the debt is reduced by 50% by half. Again, that would have been equivalent to a year and a half's wages for the average laborer. Now, the manager does almost the same with the next debtor. Verse 7, he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. 100 measures here as 100 cores, which would have been about the yield of 100 acres of land. Now, it's hard to be really precise because um, ancient measurements kind of vary throughout, but 100 cores would have been about, about a, a, a 1,100 bushels of wheat or enough food to feed 150 people for one year. Or, and this is the important part here, I think, or enough to feed one dishonest manager for 150 years. You kind of see what he's, what he's doing here? 150 years. Or another way to think about this would be to say that it would be about the, the wages. If we put it in wages, it would have been equivalent to seven and a half years of wages. That's this 100 cores of wheat, 100 measures of wheat. Seven and a half years of wages are owed Verse 7, he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And again, he reduced the amount owing, this time by 20%. And if you take 20% of seven and a half years, guess what? It's one and a half years of wages, the same amount as we had before. And so both times, the manager reduced the debts by a year and a half worth of wages. And he did this with each one of his master's debtors. And so the play then is to have these people owe him a favor. And what I think he wants to do is he wants to become a professional freeloader, a professional couch sleeper, if you could think about it like that. He wants to, he wants to have enough people kind of owe him so that, that he can have maybe with, with 10 to 20 years of wages, he wants to have 10 to 20 years of sleeping on the couch or sleeping in the spare room. And he won't have to dig and he won't have to beg. And there's really no other way to look at this, although some really try to do that. The manager cheated his master by reducing the debts. In verse 1, we, we might have thought, well, I wonder if he's just a bad manager. But now we see that he is indeed an unrighteous manager. He is selfish. He's only thinking about himself. He's only thinking about his own future. He's unrighteous. But he does seem to have solved his dilemma. He's, he's figured out a way to get out of this problem, and he's not going to have to dig, and he's not going to have to beg. And no, So now as we go into verse 8, we're kind of surprised with the response of the master. I called this the praise, the first part of verse 16. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And that's the end of the parable right there. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Literally, the master praised the unrighteous manager. He praised him. And so when we come to this, we go, what's the deal with this? This is, this is kind of strange. This is unusual. It's surprising. You don't usually praise somebody who, who ripped you off like that. Who would commend someone for cheating him? And the surprise praise has led a, a number, to a number of interpretive issues on this parable. I'm, I'm not going to really go into those for you today. Parables often have various interpretations. They're difficult to understand. I think a lot of times people go to the, the spiritual meaning too soon and they, and, the, and they misinterpret the parables. One of my favorite commentators boiled down the various interpretive options on this, kind of the historical options down to 16 core possibilities of, of what this parable could be talking about. We're, we're not even going to look at any of them. I'm just going to give you what I think is the right interpretation. And if you want to do further study on it, you can. Um, but what we need to notice here is, again, the master praised the manager. But, but notice what he praised him for. It, was for. it wasn't for stealing his goods wasn't for plundering his property. It wasn't at all because he did something good. He's the unrighteous manager. The ESV translates it there, the dishonest manager, but it's literally the unrighteous. And if there was any doubt about the righteousness of this manager, I think verse 8 settles it. He is unrighteous. He is dishonest. But why does he praise him? Look at verse 8 again. It's for his shrewdness. And I would say it's for nothing else. He was shrewd. 
And to be shrewd means to act with understanding. It means an understanding associated with wisdom and insight. To act shrewdly means to be sensible, to be thoughtful, to be wise, to be prudent. And that's what's going on here. He's praising him for his thoughtful wisdom in ripping him off really well. I think, that's what, I think that's what the way we need to interpret this. The, the praise is for how the manager made the most of the situation. For how the manager made the most of the situation. Not for cheating, not for unrighteousness, nothing like that. And so what we have here, and we're just only in the parable right now. We haven't even thought about the spiritual meaning yet. What we have is one son of this age praising another son of this age for outsmarting him. For his, just for being so shrewd, for being wise, for taking care of a difficult situation. Commentator Stanley Ellison said, quote, It wasn't the ethics of this scallywag that Jesus praised, but rather the crook shrewdness or deep thinking in regards to the future. Unlike the sons of light, this worldling was no dullard in planning for tomorrow, end quote. Or listen to commentator Robert Stein. He says, quote, It is best to interpret the manager's actions as being dishonest. He is commended essentially for being a shrewd scoundrel and taking care of his future. End quote. Now another thing that I'll point out here is that surprise elements in parables often give a clue to how they should be interpreted. And so this is a, 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 situ- a, a part of the parable that we need to pay a t- a special attention to. The shrewdness here is praised by the master. Again, not his unrighteousness, but shrewdness. And that is specifically praised. Specifically, shrewdness in preparing for the future. Shrewdness in preparing for the future. Now, let's summarize the story so far. We haven't talked about the spiritual meaning yet. We've got a worldly, unrighteous manager. He's in a predicament. He's losing his job. He's worried about his future prospects. And he has limited time to act, but he came up with a shrewd plan. He thought wisely. He, he thought with understanding to gain favor with his master's debtors. And they would welcome him into their homes when this whole thing went down. And so this represents a spiritual truth that we can now begin to get into. That We've got, a, again, a worldly, unrighteous steward shrewdly acting to be welcomed in the future. Let me, let me say that again. A worldly, unrighteous manager, he's shrewdly acting to be welcomed in the future. And this then brings us to our fourth point here, number four, the principle. <clears throat> the principle, second half of verse eight to the end of verse 13. And as we look at these closing verses, I, I wanna just give you the structure first of all. The parable ends in verse 8 where the master is praised. And then it says, so the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's the end of the parable. First thing we see here, the second half of verse 8, Jesus is explaining how to interpret the parable. And so we could say, how do we interpret this? Well, verse 8, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The New American Standard, Legacy Standard Bible translates verse 8, the second part of it there. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And it's a proverbial statement. It's a, a generally true observation about worldly unsaved people that our Lord made compared to saved people. And we'll look at that in a minute. But then secondly, what we see in verse 9, that's kind of specific application. And we might put the question there, how, what should we do? So verse 8 is kind of how do we interpret? Verse, verse 9 is what should we do? How should we respond? And Jesus says there, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And then in verses 10 to 13, I think these are intended to really drive the truth home challenging us and and warning us, and we'll look at those when we get there, but we might have a question for those, who do we serve? Who do we serve? So anyway, that's kind of the structure there. Let's let's get into this then. In the second part of verse 8, Jesus makes a shocking statement that's, again, meant to point us to the spiritual meaning of the parable, and he divides the world into two groups. We've got the sons of the world, or the sons of this world, and the sons of light. 
And I think we're familiar with these kind of two groups. It's basically, we might think about it more often as believers and unbelievers, saved people and unsaved people, lost people and found people. There's those who are born of the light, born from above, those who are born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, saved and, and taken out of darkness. And then there's those who remain in the darkness of their natural birth. They're unsaved, they're blinded, they're, they're lost people. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so a child of light uh, is, a, is a son of light delivered from darkness. And you're either one or the other. If you think about your own life, you're either one or the other. You're, you're, you're in one category or the, or, the, or the other. Nobody's partly born again or partly saved. You're either saved or you're not. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. And so you're one or the other. Now, another way of that Scripture talks about these two groups, and I think it might be helpful here, is to talk about them as the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? The righteous and the unrighteous. Sons of the world or sons of this age, they're, the, Jesus says, they are more shrewd than believers. They are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation. And you can think about this unrighteous manager. He was, he was more shrewd to prepare for his future than the sons of light are to prepare for theirs. And that starts to get us into the meaning of this parable and interpreting it. This is what we call, or sometimes call, a, a how much more parable. How much more parables compare one thing to another, the, usually the lesser to the greater. You know, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven? Same kind of an idea here. And so here's how this parable works. If an unrighteous manager can be so shrewd in preparing for his temporal future, his, his kind of future in this age, then how much more should a righteous person prepare for their eternal future? Right? That's, that's what's going on here. If an unrighteous manager can do that, if a worldly person can think about their future, then how much more should you be able to think about your future, especially since you have righteousness in your life? And that's the idea here, but, but Jesus doesn't actually say how much more. He makes a comparison, and one is more than another. The unrighteous manager or the unrighteous sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And what that is then is it's a bit of a condemnation for us because the worldly people are more shrewd. They're thinking harder about their eternal future and what they're going to do with their lives so that they can take care of themselves in the future than believers are at thinking about their eternal future. And so the Lord is almost condemning us by making this kind of general statement of truth. And it kind of stings a little bit, doesn't it, to think about that? It kind of stings, but that's what Jesus is saying. And he's telling us that so that we can recognize it and repent, so that we would no longer be like that, but we would kind of take this admonition to account and be like this shrewd, unrighteous person and plan for our future. But generally speaking, what Jesus says is true. Think about it. How carefully and diligently do unbelievers prepare for their future? You know, there's almost nothing that they care about more than just taking care of themselves, right? You think about un unsafe people. They, they just want to take care of themselves. They just want to have a good life. Their comfort and their well-being, their desires, that's really chief amongst their affections. And the unrighteous manager here is a great illustration of that. He didn't want to dig. He was ashamed of begging, and so he made plans for a good future for himself. And he took action. He, he, he did things to take care of his future. And all of his mental and, and physical energy went into securing for himself a comfortable future. And so now to apply this to ourselves, you need to ask yourself this. Did the manager work harder and think wiser and did he act more shrewdly about his future than you work and think to prepare for your eternal destiny? How much thinking and, and working are you doing to prepare for your eternal destiny? 
He says to himself, I've, I've only got a limited amount of time to prepare for my future. The, the owner's on his way over. He's going to take the books from me. I've only got a limited amount of time. What am I going to do? I know what I'll do. And he gets right to work serving himself so that he can have a comfortable future going forward. Look at verse 8 again. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. You know, brothers and sisters, do we not often live like there is no eternal destiny to prepare for? I think sometimes we do. I think sometimes we just all together forget about eternity and we're just living in the day-to-day just like the unrighteous manager here thinking about our temporal estate when we know that there's an eternal kingdom awaiting for us. We sometimes live as if there was no heaven and there was no eternal state and if there was no rewards in that state. And so listen, if an unrighteous man who cares for nothing but himself can prepare for his future, should we not much more prepare for ours? And there's a double contrast here, and I think it's appropriate to emphasize both. First, we see the temporal versus the eternal, right? We see the the temporary, the here and now versus eternity, and I think we get that. I think we don't need to talk about that very much, although we really could spend more time there. But the other contrast here that I want to focus on is there's a contrast between the unrighteous and the righteous. And part of our righteousness means that we live with reward in heaven in mind. Part of our righteousness means that we're eternally minded people, or at least we should be. And so our righteousness, it flows from the new nature, which was created in righteousness and holiness of truth, Ephesians 4.24 and the point is here is that we have a twofold reason to prepare better than the sons of this world. Number one, we prepare for eternity. Number two, we are righteous. And that righteousness helps us and, and leads us into doing things that are going to prepare us for eternity, if you can kind of follow that. And so we serve in righteousness, which builds and lays up treasures for ourselves in eternity. Now look at verse 9 now. Jesus says, I tell you, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And here is Jesus' command that flows out of the parable. Here's what the Lord tells you today. This is what Jesus tells you today. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The main point of the parable is that we ought to be shrewd in preparing for our eternal dwelling. Now, the specific application of the parable is that we should use unrighteous wealth to do it. We should use unrighteous wealth to prepare for eternity. And what we've got to do now is we've got to note the parallel between verse 4 and verse 9. So look at verse 4, back to verse 4. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And then if you look at verse 9, there's a comparison. There's similarities here. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, the parallels in Greek are a little bit closer, a little bit easier to see. But let me, let me see if we can make some of these here. Both of these verses have the verb to do or to make. In verse 4, I have decided what to do. In verse 9, make friends, it, it has the same verb. I don't know how we would bring it into English, like do for yourselves friends. Get yourself some friends. You're doing something. There's an action taken. Same verb in the Greek. So doing and making. Okay, both also have, verse 4 and verse 9, both have so that when. Verse 4, so that when I am removed... And then verse 9, so that when it fails. And both have, they may receive with the same Greek verb. And so verse 4, that, um, so that when I am removed from the management, they may, this is literally, they may receive me into their houses. Verse 9, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And the sense of the parallelism the, and the sense that it gives is that, that we're to follow the example of the unrighteous manager. 
Now, we're not to follow his example by being unrighteous or by being, uh, you know, shrewd and robbing people of their money. That's not the idea at all. The idea is that we're to follow his example in being shrewd in preparing for the future, our eternal future. And so the question then is for us is how do we prepare for our future? How do we prepare for our eternal dwelling? Now, notice, first of all, the the great emphasis in the parable on what we do. Remember, again, to do or to make, and it's actually four times in these nine verses. Verse 3, what shall I do? Verse 4, I know what I will do. That's my literal translation. Verse 8, the master praised the, the manager because he acted shrewdly. And in Greek, it's he did shrewdly, the same verb, to do. Verse 9, make friends is the same verb. And so Jesus wants us to do something in order to prepare for our future. And this is very similar to what we have in the Sermon on the Mount where we're to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. Same kind of an idea, by, by doing things. Now, how are we to do that in the Sermon on the Mount? By, by doing what we do according to the word. This is, this is how we lay up treasures in heaven, Okay. By doing what we do according to the word and for Jesus' sake and by receiving whatever persecution or suffering that comes from those actions. Okay, this is how to lay up treasures in heaven. Doing what the word of God says, obeying it. Doing what you do for Jesus' sake or doing what you do for the glory of God. And then also on the kind of passive side, if you want to think about it like that, by suffering persecution or suffering whatever it might be for doing those things. That's how we lay up treasures in heaven. Now, the wealth of unrighteousness, if I think we're in verse 9 still. The wealth of unrighteousness or unrighteous wealth is, is literally mammon there, literally mammon. And, and mammon is that in which one trusts. And it can refer to property or possessions or money or wealth, as the ESV translates it. Mammon is used in Scripture negatively as as that which is opposite of God. This is what the ungodly live for, mammon, the property, possessions, money, wealth. They trust in it. They they worship it instead of God, and so it's kind of an, an idolatry thing. Property, possessions, and wealth, those aren't going to endure eternally. They will fail. Unrighteous mammon will fail. And and Jesus is saying in verse 9 then, use those things now to prepare for eternity. Use your property, your possessions, everything that you have. Use it to prepare for eternity. It's going to fail. Money and possessions and earthly wealth is going to fail unless... Unless we use it now for eternal purposes. And so Jesus wants us to invest in eternity. He wants us to use what we have now to make eternal friends. Stanley Ellison said this. He said, quote, The wise use of money is to convert it into eternal currency before its value plunges to zero at the grave. Making friends for eternity preserves their value and dividends forever, end quote. Again, commentator Robert Stein said, quote, general, the general sense is clear, even if the meaning of friends is not. Believers should so conduct their lives that when this world and its wealth comes to an end, God will welcome them into his presence, end quote. And so these friends who will receive us, they're, they're probably people who've been blessed eternally through our service for the Lord. That's kind of the idea of these friends. Just like the master's debtors were, were blessed by the manager when he, when he kind of lowered their debts, so our deeds should impact those around us. Not by unrighteousness, but by righteousness. And this applies to everything we do. Everything in life we could kind of see this way, that we're doing it for the Lord's sake, for his glory, thinking about our reward in heaven, thinking about impacting people in ways that matter for eternity. But Jesus narrows the focus here just to our use of money. Because mammon or money or wealth or property or possessions is is so often the thing that makes us lose our focus 
on eternity, isn't it? It's, it's just the, we get, we get kind of the world in our mind and we lose our focus. And so Jesus just narrows it down to mammon. And he, and he says, watch out the way you think about your money. You're going to, don't lose focus and forget about eternity. Make friends for yourselves in heaven. Make friends for yourselves in eternal dwellings. And so verse 13, I think, really brings this out. Well, let's skip down to verse 13. And it asks us, who do we love? Who are we devoted to? Who are we serving? Who or what are we living for? Look at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, is the literal translation. And so if you want to prepare for eternity, if you're going, how do I prepare friends in eternity? Here it is right here, very simple. Serve God, love God, be devoted to God, be devoted to him. Don't, and forget about the world, hate the world, despise the world, and just focus on serving, loving, and, and being devoted to God. Or to put it negatively again, don't serve money. Don't be a slave to money. Don't love possessions or wealth or property You must almost despise those things that take our focus off of heaven. They must almost become our enemy because we have a mission to accomplish in this world. And we're to do this, again, not to earn salvation. We already have that, but we do this because we are saved out of thankfulness for what the Lord has done for us and out of the knowledge that we have an eternal reward waiting for us in heaven. But now look at verses 10, 11, and 12. Verse uh, 10, one who is faithful in a very little, and the very little here is your temporal possessions, the things that you own. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, And what is another's, again, refers to possessions and reminds us that everything that we have belongs to God. It's it's his, not ours. It's another's. And so again, verse 12, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now notice the, the fourfold use of faithful there in those verses. Faithful, verse 10, again, faithful, verse 10, 11, faithful in the unrighteous wealth and faithful in that which is another's, verse 12. Jesus is calling us to faithfulness. The unrighteous manager was really faithful to himself and we need to be faithful to God. Faithfulness to God is really living for eternity. Now think about this. We're really in a similar position as that of the unrighteous manager. We're in a a bit of a predicament ourselves right now. We've been entrusted with resources and various skills and abilities. And we only have a limited amount of time on earth until Jesus returns. And so like the unrighteous manager, we need to be shrewd to prepare a heavenly welcome for ourselves. We need to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, and we only have a limited amount of time, and we need to be shrewd. In other words, we really need to labor and think about how to lay up treasures in heaven. How can I best use my time, my talents, my resources, my ability, my, my, my financial resources, whatever it is, how can I best use all of me to serve the Lord in this time? And we need to be shrewd. We need to think about it hard. We need to to really work to understand with wisdom what are the best ways for me with who I am to serve the Lord in this time. And so our play, our, our plan should be to give ourselves to the ministry to serve God and to serve others. And so here's a question to help you be a shrewd son of light. Ask yourself this. How can I serve God in greater ways with my time, my talents, and resources? Or another question, is there a wiser, is there a more crafty way, is there a more thoughtful way, is there a more diligent way, is there a more prudent way to live to increase my impact on eternity and make a difference for heaven? You know, we only have one life on this earth, one time to serve the Lord, and then it's gone. 
And so many things can distract us. Now, a crucial part of this is to support the ministry of your local church and to be involved in your local church and and serve the Lord in the church. This is the thing that God is building in this age. This is the thing that we can can, um, serve the Lord and, and join him in his purposes. He's building his church. And so part of this is just to be a part of your church, support your church, and use your gifts and abilities in the church. Part of this is to support Jason so that he can, can free himself and devote himself to the ministry and that, that you guys can be led well so that you can be effective as a group together. Another part of this is supporting missionaries, supporting the work of God globally, support missionaries who are going to plant churches and train ministers of the gospel, who are going to serve the Lord well according to his word. These are ways to invest mammon and turn it into eternal currency. Again, we have a limited time to prepare for our eternal dwelling. And whatever we do or suffer for the Lord, for his people, for his cause, whether it's reaching the lost or building the church, whatever we do or suffer for his sake is going to be rewarded in heaven. And maybe I should just say at this point that I know that that many of you have been going through some difficult times, even in this church or even on Wednesday night, there was all these health things and stuff. You can, you can suffer well for the Lord in whatever you're going through, and that's part of preparing for eternity. And on that day, when we stand before the Lord, when we are rewarded for our works, our master will praise us, if we could say it that way. Our master is, just like the master praised the unrighteous manager, our master will praise us and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And that's what we're looking forward to. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this passage that, that teaches us to prepare for eternity. We ask that you would help us to do just that, Lord. We ask uh, that you would would help us to, to be shrewd, to think. We would pray that you would give these brethren wisdom about the best ways to serve you with all of their gifts and talents and abilities. Pray that you would help us to focus on eternity, to get our mind off of the things of the world. Father, we pray that we would love you and serve you and be devoted to you and to no one else. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.